Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, Stu Biffin. It's another week, so it's another episode. And this episode is a great episode. Not because of me, because of the guest, obviously. And this week's guest is journalist and author Andrew Emery. I hadn't met Andrew before. It was it was actually a, a listener that got in touch with me and said, uh, you should check this guy out. I think he'd make a really, really cool guest. And because uh, my friend had heard him on Ramesh's podcast and said, yeah, Go, go check him. So I did and reached out to him and he was well up for coming on, which was amazing. And we met up at the WeWork building in London and we had a great chat. It was one of them ones where the moment I met him, before we even started recording, the, the, the conversation was flowing. So this is uh, this is a really good one. And and when we finished recording, we, we, we carried on rabbiting away for another half hour. Until we had to uh, go our separate ways. Um, we go in on, on his books and we go in on his love of hip-hop uh, and just how, at points, it's hilarious just how serious he is about his hip-hop. And and he's, he's, he's great, Andrew. You know, he, he laughs at the ridiculousness of a lot of it and, and, and we go in on the names, his pseudonyms and his... His uh, his crew names and stuff like that. It's it's, it's a great episode, and uh, and yeah, and I'm, I can't wait for you to listen to it. So before we we get on with it, just a few shout outs. Um, big love to uh, Ben Berlin for letting me use uh, the WeWork offices to record in. Thank you to my lovely producer seventy six for producing this. Thanks to my name is Ad for doing the artwork. Um, Big thank yous and hellos to everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. And if you like this episode, please have a look in the back catalogue if this is your first venture into Off The Beaten Track, because there's a huge back catalogue of episodes with producers, writers, DJs, musicians, actors, comedians, all, all, all creative types. And if you are a, a regular listener and you want more of a fix, then head over to the Patreon page because each week I release a, another episode just for Patreons over there. And so go and explore that. Um, also, there's merchandise available. There's Off The Beaten Track t-shirts and amazing art prints by Paul McDonald. And you can find out about the Patreon, the social medias and all the merchandise in one place. 
www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. That's all finished with now. Let's get back to the job at hand, which is going through them songs and going through the journey with today's Off The Beat and Track podcast guest, the wonderful Andrew Emery. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out, because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast, and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done, is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code, Beat 15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk, official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, stew with him. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. It's a Thursday afternoon. I'm at the WeWork building in London, kindly offered to me by my uh, good friend and future guest Ben Berlin. And sitting opposite me today is writer, journalist, Andrew Emery. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. You all right? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit the worse for wear after a big day yesterday. But uh, so you mentioned that you saw Stetsasonic last night. Well, you thought you was going to go and see Stetsasonic last night. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I think the last time they played London was 1990. So there was a lot of excitement. People coming from all over the country. People flown in from Germany for the gig, and there was two of the original members there out of the seven. Which, that's poor. Well, their build is like you know the original hip hop band. Yeah. Two people was not a band, is it? It's no. you know, it's a duo. <laughs> so it was it was a shambles and yeah we left after 15 minutes and yeah. uh, but you know you live and you learn it's not the first uh, bad hip hop gig I've been to and I'm sure it won't be the last no you know no. The, the live reputation of hip hop is uh, is is well deserved do you think so yeah i mean there's 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 certain acts that are absolutely brilliant year in year out public enemy della soul they always perform brilliantly yeah. but you know there's been countless gigs where people have turned up mumbled over backing tracks yeah 
or over their own vocal tracks. You know, yeah. I remember there's been near riots at hip hop gigs in the past, but yeah. there was no chance of that last night. I mean, literally everyone in there was like nearly 50. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, people yeah. like me. No, jazz uh, cafe. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I saw Big Daddy Kane there a few years back. Right. He delivered. Yeah. Right. He's, he's somebody who does it. Although, actually, we were talking about him last night because, uh, he played Leeds uh, a couple of years ago and he came on stage at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Even he's too old to be doing that. No, everyone was livid. <laughs> They'd all got in there at like, you know, half 10 thinking I'll be on stage at 11 if yeah. you at 4. But yeah, I was, I was in Jazz Cafe like a couple of months ago for Devin the Dude. Yeah. And he came over and that was straight into my top 10 of concerts of all time. Oh, really? Just one man on a microphone and he just did all the, did all the hits. Everyone in the crowd knew every every line, yeah. you know, and that was like a reminder that hip hop gigs can still be great. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I've been to a fair few bad ones. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get onto that as this this podcast unfolds. Well, as you probably know, because we've we've been chatting for a while to to get this date in the diary, and uh, and I appreciate you making the effort today, mate. And we're going to start the playlist as as always. If I ask you the song that you you think it's got the greatest ever intro? This is a, a difficult one to pick because there's so many intros in hip-hop records. Mm -hmm. I think without a shadow of a doubt, hip-hop has the greatest intros of any music. Mm -hmm. I think... You, you can have some honourable mentions as well. So, like, okay. you can throw a few in there, mate. So, you know, I mean, I was, I was, there were so many, like... I mean, Public Enemy were, were famous for their intros, especially on the first couple of albums. You know, they'd, they'd use, like, a... a a, a speech from Farrakhan or a little, you know, Flavor Flav talking. Yeah. There's a bit on Public Enemy number one where Flavor Flav's talking over the sample from Fred Wesley, yeah. Blow Your Head. You know, first time I heard that, oh, absolutely incredible. And Rebel Without a Pause. Oh, mate, as soon as you hear Brothers, you just think, here we go. Yeah. Right, and you're in. Yeah, and that's, you know, for me, Rebel Without a Pause is the greatest song ever recorded. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's my number one all time uh, thing. It's when I perform at hip hop karaoke on the rare occasions I go down there. I love it, but that intro... And you can just, deliver that, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can deliver that. That's it. Yeah, you know. I might have to pause halfway through to have a blast on the inhaler, but... Cool. You know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think because hip-hop did so many kind of skits and stuff like that, they just... It became a, a thing, you know, before you yeah. got to the main track, there was always somebody waffling on, mm -hmm. and sometimes it was impressive, and sometimes, like, you yeah. know, it was a bit boring. But I thought I'll, you know, try and be a bit eclectic in it, so... Uh, I've, I've not chosen a, a hip-hop one. I've chosen one from my youth, which was before I was a hip-hop boy, I was a metaler. Mm -hmm. um, and ACDC were my heroes as a little boy when I was seven, eight. And the, they had a live album, If You Want Blood, You've Got It. And I've still, I've still got the gatefold of it somewhere. It's got Angus Young on the front with a guitar through his chest. And on the back, you see it coming out the other side. Of course side. you do. And, uh, and they do a whole lot of Rosie on there, yeah. which they always do. And... I think it's just that little riff um, and it kind of builds up and, you know, on, on the proper version of that song, there's no chanting because it's just... Mm -hmm. da -da 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 -da. Yeah. But when you do it live, it's... Da -da 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 and Gus. Yeah, da -da -da, you know, And I was like, you know, playing air guitar as a seven-year-old, just thrilled by that, you know, yeah. and whenever I hear that... And so I got to see him live eventually um, and it's still one of the greatest live performances. As, as a child or as an adult? As an adult, I yeah. think I must have been in my late 20s, yeah. and I finally got to see him play in Manchester, and they did that, yeah. you know, and they've got all the big inflatable women on stage and all this, you know, it's, it's a throwback, his ACDC yeah. live. But that's still to this day, you know, and there's a few others from that era, like 
you know, Rainbow, Since You've Been Gone. Yeah. That kind of opening riff. Yeah. You know, you just think, oh, here we go. This is, yeah. this, it, this is classic rock, you know. And I've kind of fallen out of love with rock, but when I hear that kind of intro, you know, to an ACDC or a, or a Rainbow or a, a Deep Purple, yeah. you know, it still, it still gets the hairs on my back tingling, you know. So... I mean, looking through the, the songs that you've sent me and, and obviously knowing what your passion for writing is about and, and what you've wrote books about, it's obviously hip-hop. Um, but just looking at it, I think the time scale of, of getting into hip-hop probably doesn't relate to the question I'm going to ask. But could you see you know, how, how much of an impact did some of them early songs, that probably rap records that hit the charts and made it on top of the pops. I'm talking that kind of rock rap crossover stuff like early beasties, um, obviously run DMC and, and maybe a few years later, um, Amphrax and public enemy. Yeah. Well, what, what they did, they made it quite easy for me to kind of assimilate my love of hip hop into my house because we were a, a rock household. My dad was an, an old metaler. Yeah. I remember him going to see Saxon and people like that yeah. in Nottingham, you know, on his own and coming back with his ears bleeding and, you know. Uh, and when I first started like playing hip hop when I was 11 years old, it was all like, what's this? What's that? This, yeah. is, this is rubbish. So when we were on family holidays, you know, driving around Portugal or whatever, and I'm trying to get some of my songs on the tape deck, if I got like a, a Beasties yeah. or Walk This Way, my yeah. dad loves Walk This Way. Yeah. You know, he, he loved Fight For Your Right. Yeah. So even while they weren't my favourite songs by those yeah. artists, it was a way for me to get them on the, yeah. on, you know, on the car, yeah. on, the, on the holidays and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've got an affection for that, for the yeah. rock rap thing. You know, I would, I'd rather the two on their own. Yeah. You know, like the version of Bring The Noise of Anthrax is my least favourite version of that song, yeah. you know. But I, it did help, I think get it accepted in the UK as well. I think it got it onto the radio, it got it onto TV, got onto Definitely. MTV. I, I, I saw that on the chart show for the first time and, and seeing Scott Ian and, and Flav standing together it just looked crazy. It yeah. was like, because that was, I mean, Amphrax was full on, like, rock. Yeah, totally. And, you know, far more than what Aerosmith were and, and the kind of Rick Rubin style guitar stuff that was being used on, on Beastie's stuff. But, Amphrax were full-on fresh band, you know, and, and yeah. then to, to, to see that. And they toured together as well, didn't they? I mean, they that's, did, yeah. that's pretty incredible to think that... I mean, that's, that's got to just be Chuck, and it? Chuck's just switched on like... He know. is, yeah. And I think he saw... It's almost like a marketing thing, really. It's like, we're the rebels of hip-hop, you know, and these are the rebels of, of thrash. Yeah. And, you know, together, we're kind of a countercultural kind of yeah. combination. So it was a really clever marketing tool because it got Public Enemy known in a, to an audience that they yeah. wouldn't otherwise, yeah. you know, and Anthrax as well, yeah. you know. Um, and it, it, it kind of led to a whole kind of subgenre of, like, rock and rap stuff. Well, you that, had the Judgment Night soundtrack, didn't that's you? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, and that was, that was as someone that was always a DJ in the alternative clubs, like, but always loving hip-hop, that was just a dream come true, that album, you know? Yeah, uh, the te- is that the Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul oh, track falling. on there? Yeah, yeah I, mean, but, I mean, that was the one that was very different from everything else on there because that's, that's so chilled, that track, and it's, it's beautiful. But some of the stuff like, I think, is it like Faith No More and Booyah Tribe? And, and yeah. I think there's <laughs> like um, Onyx are on there, aren't they? Onyx, and yeah. I think Cypress Hill are on there. And I can't think who else was, was on that soundtrack, but it was uh, huge. And it was one of them things that in all the kind of rock clubs, 
we was dropping all of them tunes and it was yeah it was good yeah. and uh, I think there's also like there was a little period in like the late 80s where every hip hop album it had a ballad it had uh, a rock rap crossover track yeah and sometimes it would have a hip house track as well yeah there was, like, they were trying to stick every single box yeah you know you, it was probably some A&R in the background going no you need to do this you need, your token. You need to do yeah. that so like, even Dr. Dre had a, like an in-house guitar guy called Stan the Guitar Man so on every, like, you know, the albums he produced for, like, Eazy-E and uh, the DOC, there'd always be a guitar track, you know. Oh, right. You know, and, and sometimes it worked. Yeah. Sometimes it didn't, but, yeah. Stan the Guitar Man. Stan That's the a Guitar great Man. Name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, track two. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. I mean, I would say, like, the, the very first songs I heard of, of, of metal had an emotional impact on me in the way that they, they got me, you know, excited and amped and playing air guitar or playing air keyboard or air drums, you know, and all that. But I, the one I've chosen is because it, it kind of marked a changing point in my entire life, um, which was when I went to secondary school when I was 11 years old and uh, somebody played me uh, some electro music. I'd never heard it before. Um, I think there'd been a couple of songs in the charts, maybe the first bits of hip hop that had, like, you know, got on top of the pops or whatever. How old are you, Andrew? How old am I now? Yeah. I'm 45. Oh, you're the same as me then. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so this is 1984. Mm -hmm. So people were starting to break dance at school. Subway um, art being passed about? That was being passed about. And I, I'd gone from, like, my primary school, I'd never heard any of this stuff, you know. And uh, as I think I'll, I'll probably mention a, a bit later, you know, I grew up, my dad had a mobile disco, so I was exposed to a lot of music. Yeah. Um, but it was all pop, and yeah. it was what my, my, my oldest sister listened to, um, you know, what she'd play in the house. But when I went to school, and I just, you know, you start to get a bit independent at secondary school, and you start to meet some bigger lads, and they, they're coming from a, uh, they've come in from a further area, they didn't grow up in your village. Yeah. And... Uh, They've got cooler trainers They've as well. They've got cooler trainers. <laughs> and they all have those night, those night wind cheaters. The wind runner, yeah. Uh, mate, which, you know, I, I, I was covering, and people started wearing what they called then baseball boots. Yeah. You know, and it was basically the first Nikes and Jordans yeah. coming through. And people didn't call them basketball boots where I came yeah. from. They called them baseball boots. Yeah. And, I, you know, I remember going with my mum to the arcade in Bingham and, like, going, my mum, you know, what, a night wind cheater, I want this. And I, and I came out with a pair of, like, Lecoq Sportif or something that yeah. it was like 10 quid cheaper you know but I remember way before I mean I, 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 maybe it was just at my school because it went really uncool high tech but my mate had a pair of high tech techs the white ones oh yeah with the big with the big flappy tongue yeah they were decent boots back they in the day they were uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> they were yeah, they were huge I, I went through a little period a few years ago of trying to find you know buy parts of my youth on eBay and you can you can find a few pairs of them that haven't oh, really? totally perished, yeah. But I ended up buying some troop trainers and nice. all, all sorts of stuff like that. Excellent. Kept it in a cupboard for a bit. But so yeah, so it was just that thing you were you exposed to a much wider group of people and they were bringing, you know, like you say, cultural things like you know cooler clothes, um, but also cooler music. I still remember like it was someone's house and they were like literally putting a tape. Have you heard this? And it was like a switch was had been put on my head and what he was playing was Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force and I'd never heard it before I'd never heard anything like it before and I, it was almost instantaneous I was always like this is it now this is what I like mm. and he, he, he lent me the tape and and I think uh, maybe it was Electro 2 or something like that one of the Electro compilations and I just took that home and I just wore it out 
both sides. And he was like, can I have my tape back? Can I have my tape back? I was like, no, mate, no, mate. You know, I've just got to dub it off. I've got to dub it off and then I'll give it back. And it, and it just sparked a change in my life. You know, I, I finally had my own musical taste that was distinct from my dad's. And, you know, it kind of marked a bit of a separation between me and my father and me and my rest of my family because it was all pop in our house or my dad's, mm. my dad's metal. So, yeah, so the, it had an emotional impact in that, well, I fell in love with hip-hop and I've been in love with hip-hop for the, for the remaining 34 years of my life. But it also, yeah, it shifted my entire life. You know, my clothes, my slang, the way I dressed, the way I... You know, started body popping at school and stuff like that. Yeah, stuff I wouldn't dream of before. Yeah. So it had like a devastating impact on me. So you, know? you would have been what, twelve? I, I was eleven, 11. when I first heard yeah. that. So it, it, it'd been out for a couple of years already. Yeah. You know, so it had its impact. Yeah. In in New York, but I, I lived in like a you know a little market town in Nottinghamshire then, mm. and you know it took a while to filter through. And it's it's a strange record, isn't it? Like it's it's. It's quite eerie as well, isn't it? I think like a lot of the different sort of stuff the components have put that together are quite contradicting, and I think it does give it quite a. It doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't. Um, what's weird? It, it occupies like a really strange place in the kind of timeline of hip hop because sampling in hip hop was only really big from about eighty six, eighty seven onwards, yeah. but also at the very beginning. Yeah. And in the middle, you've got all the drum machine stuff. Yeah. So. And he was just basically throwing in records from all over the place that people hadn't heard. Mm. So everyone was used to listening to like all the breakbeat stuff that they were playing in the Bronx in the late 70s. But he was just like, oh, no, I've, we've got some Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yeah. We've got all this stuff. Yeah. But So what I think what makes that record amazing is the same thing that makes Africa Bambata one of the worst live DJs I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he came, he came... We used to do a club in Leeds called Heads Club, and... Um, you know, we, we got him over to do it, and he, he would play like a cracking record, and then he'd play ACDC, and then he'd play Yellow Magic Orchestra, and none of it fit together yeah. as a club night. Yeah. But it works on that record. Yeah. You know, it's like a kitchen sink approach, and he's just like, take a bit of that, sprinkle yeah. of that, and then he's got some like, you know, rappers dressed up in like futuristic gear, and it just worked for the time. Do you know what? The, the first time I booked him, he'd come over and when you think Bambata, you think the headdress and you, you, you just think, like, just look like saying at a, like, parliament or something. You just wanted yeah. something amazing to come in. Uh, he rocks up in a pair of um, slightly too tight, um, <laughs> look like kind of Primark black jogging bottoms and just this, like, ill-fitting T-shirt. But I just thought, it's Africa Bambata, you know, like... He DJed with one hand in his pocket as well. Uh, he didn't take uh, one hand out of his pocket for the whole set. He had two younger guys with him that were kind of doing some sort of breaking and stuff like that. But he just didn't really deliver as a DJ. And we booked him again probably about three years ago in Brighton to come and DJ for, for me and Pip. And, and again, it was like nothing special. Like, yeah. It's, you know, some people coast on reputation and yeah, yeah he made some of the most groundbreaking records Absolutely. of the era. And, you know, he had, he played a big role in the, in the birth of hip hop, but record wise, yeah. he only made two or three good records. And what with Johnny Lydon, didn't he? That's a good tune. He did. Yeah. He did that was it. What's it called? Will destruction. Yeah. And he did, um, frantic situation and yeah. looking for the perfect beat. They, they were all brilliant. But that, it's a short period of time he's career. Yeah. And then, you know, we're looking at 30 years on. Yeah. And he hasn't worked with anybody else. He hasn't d- done anything of note. So he, I think he's coasting on reputation a bit. And I think 
we know some of us may be in the UK are like, yeah, let's get them in because they're our Course. foundational heroes, yeah. you know, and sometimes they deliver, sometimes yeah. they don't. Sometimes yeah. they're nice people, sometimes they're yeah. assholes, aren't they? Yeah. You know, I mean, Grandmaster Flash has a terrible reputation to work yeah. with, but he delivers as a DJ still. Yeah. So. Yeah, he, he, he knows his shit. Yeah. Uh, but um, am I right in saying that there was some nasty stuff floating about Bambart a little while back, wasn't there? There is, yeah. There's, there's has that gone all, away or is that... I, I think the problem is it's all happened so long ago, yeah. statute of limitation stuff. But yeah, there's, there were rumours about, yeah. you know, well, the rumours of paedophilia, basically. Yeah. Um, and people came forward saying they were uh, raped and harassed. I don't know what the legal situation with that is sure. at all, really. Yeah. But, you know, it's it kind of fits into, you know... It makes you think about your heroes in the way that we are doing with many of our film stars yeah. and, and film directors and yeah. people like that. And during the Me Too times, you know, it's yeah. like, can you still enjoy their art as much yeah. if, if you like, if they've done terrible things? Yeah. Where do you stand on that? Well, look, I, you know, Woody Allen's my favourite film director of all time. Yeah. You know, did he do it? Did he not do it? I don't know, but that's not going to stop me watching Hannah and the Sisters or, yeah. you know, Annie Hall. Yeah. Uh, because I, I think you can divorce the art from the person, yeah. you know. But will I go and spend money in the cinema on his next film? Probably not. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. there's ways to do it. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit fundamentally dishonest to, to like throw everything out to say, well, I'm never going to listen to that again. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to live my life and never listen to Planet Rock again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but I might think differently about the man himself. Yeah. Still listening to your Michael Jackson records? Yeah. Funny enough, my um, my um, my girlfriend's son has um, Thriller on his on his hi-fi in his room and I was, I was saying to her the other day I was like what do you think about that maybe we should have a little word with him about you know <laughs> <laughs> but he's eight years old you, you don't want to kind of ruin that for him yeah of the course pure, the pure joy he gets from dancing in his, in his room to you know to magnificent records yeah yeah yeah. so it's it's tricky and I've not seen the documentary yet either have you so, not it's, no. do you know what it's, it's, it's a bit I'll, I'll just say watch it because some of it I'm not too sure on, but some of it you do think, man, that's, that's dark. But it was quite weird as we was watching it. Like my, my wife's a ridiculously big Jackson fan. So like a few years ago, I got this signed photo of Michael Jackson and framed it. And, oh, nice. and it's up in the living room above the deck. <laughs> and when that finished, I was like, that's got to go, isn't it? <laughs> Can't have him looking down at us. I was like, right, let's go and put that one up the shed. Let's go and put something back in the living room now. We can't have him on the walls anymore. It's, uh, it's worth a watch, definitely. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a bit strange. It's funny you mention that. I used to have a framed uh, black and white uh, of Woody Allen. Right. And that went to my writing shed. <laughs> 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 but I'm not, I'm not having guests look at that and, you know, ask any questions. So. Right, well, um, I generally ask guests at this point, like... Um, you know, was there music on at home and, and, and stuff like that growing up? But obviously there was. If your dad was a mobile DJ and a, and a rocker, I guess there was no shortage of, of stuff on at home. It was, it was constant. I mean, in, if, my, uh, if my dad wasn't there, my mum would have the radio on. And it was, uh, it was all kind of like Jimmy Young and Jimmy Savile. Yeah. When he, when he used to have a radio yeah. show and stuff like that. So it was all kind of... I'd get more of a gentle music from my mum, yeah. you know. Uh, but yeah, my dad, he had many failed business uh, experiments over the years, but the most exciting one for me as a kid was his mobile disco. Yeah. Because he had a guy do it for him. So my dad just owned all the records and bought all the gear. And he had this guy, Dave Pinder, who'd go out around yeah. Bingham and RAF Newton and all this and, 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 and do it. But it just meant we had, this, we had all the 45s in the house. Yeah. So when it came to like school disco time, I was just the king. Yeah. Because 
they'd be like, oh, it's school disco. Has anyone got any records? I'd turn up with like, t you know, 50 records. Yeah. And I, I've still got some of them from the time because I, I bought a load of stickers from the shop that said this belongs to, and at the time I, was, I insisted everyone called me Andy, which I can't bear now, but I, so I've got all these records from the time with this belongs to Andy stickers on them. So I could take them to the school disco, lend them to the DJ, and then take them back home at the end of the night. Yeah. And everybody loved me for that. I was like, that was my one cool thing at school. I, was like, <laughs> I, had, all, I, had, I had all the records. You know, and I remember taking taking stuff in. I remember I remember being the first kid in my primary school to do robotics. Right. You know, and because we had, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, nice one. Looking like looking like Crouchy when I was you know in 1980 or whatever. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> Is that on the CV? <laughs> I was the first kid in my school to do robotics. First kid to do robotics. That's it. That's my one claim to fame. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode, so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. But, it was, but I was taking in, like, you know, Ghost Town and stuff like that yeah. and Fun Boy 3. Mm. Um, uh, Japan ghosts, yeah. stuff like that. Great you know, records, absolutely great records, and they were mostly my sister's choices. Yeah, you know. So I took a few out of her collection, which to this day we we kind of squabble over. Yeah, what was what, and we were both big Adam and the Ants fans. Me and my sister. Yeah, we went to see him last year uh, in Leeds. How was and, that? Uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And uh, he looks incredible at the moment, doesn't he? He's just, he, you know, he just reinvented himself again. Yeah. and you know, he was always, you know, the 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 one person, the one man. I ever thought was sexy yeah. when I was a kid. I just yeah. thought, 
God, he's he's so good looking yeah. and so handsome and so charismatic. Yeah, you know, he was the, just the ultimate pop star, wasn't he? Yeah, he had everything. You know, he he, he looked acceptably stupid when yeah. he was dressed up as Prince Charming or whatever. Yeah, didn't it matter. Did, we all wanted matter. that white stripe on our nose, didn't yeah, we? We did. Yeah, and I remember like I used to go to uh, used to go to a friend's house with my sister when this was obviously it was like the early eighties when parenting wasn't like it is now. So yeah. basically, we'd be sent off to like a friend's house while well, all the parents went out for a meal together. Yeah. So it was just four kids left together to look after each other. Yeah. And we just do, and we'd make up dance routines and we used to do them to Kings of the Wild Frontier followed by Do the Hucklebuck. <laughs> coast to coast. <laughs> and you know, I was the littlest one. They, you know, I was about seven or eight and they were, you know, 12, 13 and yeah, making me do stuff and like, no, stand here, then do this yeah. and, you know, do some robotics. That's great though, isn't it? <laughs> it was brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I just grew up with music all the time. Okay. So let's, let's move to track three, which is a song that, um, well, th- th- this fits nicely. So it's the song that reminds you of your time at school. Yeah. So it's uh, Adam and the Ants. Um, but I thought I'd go with a, with a B-side um, yeah. because, well, Young Parisians, I think, came out as a single did. in the 70s yeah. before I'd heard of Adam and the Ants. But I, didn't, I heard it later on. I can't remember which album it ended up on or whether it was a B-side of one of his bigger singles. Mm. But it was, it was quite an atypical song for him. You know, at the time he was doing like Ant Rap and Prince Charming and it was like proper pop yeah whereas Young Parisians is like a throwback it's, it's way more punky isn't it way more punky it's got a little bit of kind of Sage, Serge Gainsbourg in yeah. there and you know it's quite a whimsical mm. song and when I saw him live last year I was like he's got to play that he's got to play Young Parisians if he does my life is complete yeah he didn't yeah but he did play Deutsche Girls nice. which is my second favourite Adam and yeah. Young song so yeah it just takes me back to that time it takes me back to the school disco it takes me back to Stealing records from my sister's bedroom, yeah. stealing records from my dad's disco collection, yeah. you know, and screwing them away. And I've still got all those things today. I'm not letting them go. All these battered seven inches with stickers on and, you know, they've all come open and, yeah. you know, they're, they're there with my, like, relaxed seven inch and my two yeah. tribes seven inch and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it, it's also, it kind of reminds me of a time before I became so monomaniacal about hip-hop yeah you know i was prepared to listen to anything you know i loved yeah. footloose when that song came out yeah. you know and then by the time i was 11 i shut myself off from so much other music yeah you know i became somebody who actively hated other types of music that weren't hip-hop but i think the thing is when when hip-hop dropped and us being the same age i remember the impact it had because it was i guess it was our punk it was yeah. It was it was something that just felt fell at the right time where we had no kind of understanding of it because it was from another country and it was talking about things we knew nothing about. It sounded like nothing we'd heard before, and and like you say, everyone all of a sudden was wearing different clothes and was break dancing and, and you know everyone was doing like tagging their school books and trying to do graffiti and yeah. and it was so exciting because it was something completely new and it felt like. It was the kids that were getting it. Pirate radio was starting to pop up. And, and like I say, just the impact of seeing them electro albums in, like, in, in, in record shop windows, the, the artwork on them was just different level. It looks it was, amazing. It was, it was fantastic. You know, 
I was talking to a designer mate of mine yesterday. We were looking at electro albums, and he yeah. was saying, you know, they're so influential. They kind of influenced Design Republic and people like that. Yeah. You know, and they they stand up to this day as like mm. little works of art. Absolutely. And um, but yeah, I think that was it. The, the impact was all because it wasn't just a new kind of music. It came with breakdancing. It came with the clothes. It came with trainers. It came with a little frisson of politics. Yeah. It came with beatboxing. Yeah. It came with carrying like big ghetto blasters around, yeah. you know, there was a visual element to it, yeah. which, you know, you could basically throw yourself into the whole culture, not just listen to the music, yeah. you know, and for me, who was, you know, somebody looking for something to belong to, yeah. you know, I seized onto that really, really, really tightly. Was and, there, sorry, go on. No, go on. Was, was, was there like-minded people at school like that, 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 that were on board with you? Yeah, a couple. Um, I mean, we had, a, you know, like I said, we were in a market town. I think my school of like however many hundred people, there was one black kid in my school who was probably racially abused every day of his life. Yeah. Um, so it was a white thing at our school was hip hop. It was like four or five kids. And the, most of the people who, break, who did break dancing, so on, on school breaks, you'd go into a certain hall and someone would be like throwing down a bit of lino. Yeah. But those kids weren't into hip hop, really. They just liked break dancing. They yeah. wanted to dance. We were kind of more, we took it seriously from like word one. We were like, right, we're forming our own crew. I'm the rapper, you're the DJ. Let's go and do some tagging, yeah. you know, and working on our, like, kind of on our skills, trying to do yeah. our hands, you know, do our little names, yeah. coming up with nicknames. So, you know, I think in 1984, 85, I was uh, MC Melody Ski. Nice. Uh, then I was Cold Kid E. Cold yeah. and kid, both, both felt with a K. Obviously. Uh, you know, and I'd Had to end in an E or a ski then, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my DJ was DJ Touche. He never, he never had any turntables in his life, you know. <laughs> Literally crowned around his mum's hi-fi playing MC Shan, trying to scratch on it. Brilliant. And, uh, but we just, it was just, we just threw ourselves into it wholeheartedly, but it was a tiny thing. And weirdly, like, I was at that, that Stetsasonic gig last night. I was with... Uh, a guy, a friend of mine, DJ Super Ricks, uh, and he went to my school. What was his but, name then? Uh, well, he, I, I didn't know him. Oh, all right. I, I, I only found out, you know, 30 years later that we went to the same school, but right. he was a hip-hop fan. But also at the same gig was a guy called DJ Ivory, um, and he, he was the school's big hip-hop expert, uh, and I still see him now and then. Did either and, of those know you was the first guy to do robotics at that school? No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> they need to. They need to recognise. They need to recognise. I mean, I'm assuming I've not been back to the school. I'm assuming there's a blue plaque outside now. <laughs> <I'll speak> saying... <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> oh dear. So where where was school? Uh, well, school's a couple of places for me. So I I, I, I lived in uh, Bingham, which is just outside Nottingham. Uh, I went to a school called Toot Hill, and. Uh, do you know what? Just just this week, somebody said, I think it was a Twitter thread, like, who's the most famous alumni from your school? So I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone from, from, went, went to my school. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. The guitarist from the editors, apparently. That's right. That's it. That's <laughs> it. I'm like... Uh, and then, but yeah, I moved, I moved schools when I was 13. We moved back to Leeds. How was and, that? Uh, yeah, quite traumatic, actually. Because, I mean, I remember having a conversation That's with... A Weird age to change school, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we just started like the first, I was maybe six months into GCSEs. And um, my, my dad had another failed business experiment in Portugal. He was trying to move the family out there. And he came back with his tail between his legs and was like, right, we're going to have to sell the, because we had a video shop and a taxi business and a mobile disco and a million things, but none of them made any money. And uh, oh, we're going to move the family to Leeds. But 
as Andrew's at school, you have a final say on it. Do you want to move? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Within two weeks, we were moving. You know, it was, <laughs> it was bullshit in all the way. But to be honest, it was the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. Because I, I was in with a bit of a bad crowd at school, wasn't taking school seriously. Went to a new school, literally had no mates from day one and just got, got into my books, you know, and also ended up meeting the people that I didn't form a hip-hop group with. It was a proper hip-hop group. And, yeah, and I, and, I, and I loved Leeds, you know. it was, But it was quite a challenge at the time because yeah. I was leaving behind all my hip-hop friends that I'd, that I'd, that I'd Your got. Your crew. Yeah, all my crew. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, this was like 1986, seven. So I remember, the, I remember literally going to Leeds, but within two weeks going back to Nottingham to see, to go to Rock City because the Juice crew were touring. Right. Which, you know, was like Biz Marquee, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Ramp, Marley Marle, MC Shan, yeah. Roxanne Shante. Yeah. That remains one of my all-time gigs, you know, getting a coach down there, yeah. getting a coach back. But, yeah, and so in a way, you know, music, music was the bridge for me between the two places because the people that I left behind that I was gutted about were music friends, but the people that I really latched onto in Leeds that made me feel at home in Leeds were hip-hop people, you know. I literally was doing school projects when they go, right, we've got to go into town and do a retail survey. I go to, I go to a record shop and just ask people, do you like hip-hop? And they go, yeah, I'm like, yeah, me too. Do you want to be friends? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm literally doing so, that. And you mentioned that you kind of got turned on to books and stuff when you moved to, to Leeds. And was you writing then already? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was writing poetry and I was writing lyrics, um, but... You know, I'd always been a big, I'd always been a big writer at school. I, I hooked up with an old friend recently, and he was like, "Do you remember we used to go home on lunchtime from school when you were like seven, eight, and you'd write like an eight-page story in your lunch break?" I was like, "I don't remember that at all." But it was like you were always writing, writing, writing. And I think that time in Leeds just it gave me a bit more. You know, I had to get two buses to school, two buses yeah. back, so I was just reading both ways yeah. and became a proper bookworm again. And uh, what sort of stuff was you reading at that age? I was reading a bit of Dickens. Yeah. Um, I was reading uh, Douglas Adams. I love right. Douglas Adams stuff. You know, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. Uh, I was reading. I was trying to read things a bit above my age say, level, yeah. but didn't quite get them all. We like, you know, Catcher in the Rye. I read when I was a teenager, yeah. but didn't understand a bit of it. Yeah. You know, I read, it, I read it years later, and I was like, oh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. I totally got the wrong end to stick with that. But you know, he did. He just instilled in me a kind of love for words and. At the time, I was trying to write lyrics, and you know, I was trying to be a bit different. So I was trying to be more literary and more clever. I mean, I failed dismally, yeah. you know, on every count. But you know, I just thought, oh, well, that's what the world needs, you know, yeah. a thirteen-year-old, uh, <laughs> a thirteen-year-old literate nerd. That's what, <laughs> that's what the rap world's dying, <laughs> crying out for. Um, all right. Well, look for track four. We're gonna. Um Go back, I imagine, a few years looking at your song choice. Well, not probably not so. I reckon it must have been about 86, this, I don't know if I'm not wrong. Uh, the first record, you remember buying? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I was, I was blessed. I would probably have bought a record a lot earlier, um, but we just had so many from the, uh, from the mobile disco, yeah. so I didn't have to. Yeah. So between my sister and mobile disco and then taping the top four in a Sunday, yeah. I didn't have to spend a penny on records. Yeah. Um, but when I did, uh, you know, I can't, I'm not quite sure whether it was... I Can't Wait by New Shoes or whether it was the show by Dougie Fresh. But I'll have bought it on 7-inch. I've still got them both. Both got the stickers on. This belongs to Andy. <laughs> and, uh, but New Shoes, I Can't Wait, I, I think is like the perfect pop record. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
and were new shoes like German or something. Yeah, yeah. Just yesterday, somebody sent me a link to like an, the original version of that song, which hasn't got the the kind of background noise that we all really hasn't got that on it. Oh, that can't that, work, can it? It doesn't work at all. Yeah, that that makes it, but. I think it got covered uh, by a, um, a rapper called Spider D. Right. And he did a song called I Can't Wait to Rock the Mic. And it's basically just him rapping over that. Yeah. I don't know if I heard that first and then got to New yeah. Shoes. But the New Shoes, I was, uh, I'm, I'm having this. This, yeah. this, is gonna, this is my record collection. I'm going to yeah. kick it off with this. Um, and yeah, I still play that record. And yeah. I very occasionally get to DJ at a mate's party or wedding. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a very clumsy DJ. But I, I will always play... I can't wait. Yeah. Because people who heard that when it came out have massive affection for Instantly. it. Instantly. Instantly. Same way I would also DJ, I would play Ghostbusters. Yeah. Which I'm not coming off as trying to be kitsch or, you know, zany. I love that song. Yeah. I loved it at the time. Yeah. And, you know, if you're playing to a room full of 45 year olds at a wedding and they're drunk, yeah. Ghostbusters is a really good thing to fall back on. Yeah. And that might be like the second or third single I bought as well. Yeah. So. So, new shoes, where'd you buy it? Probably uh, our price in Nottingham. So, <clears throat> the town I grew up in, in Bingham, uh, was, like I said, a little market town, uh, daily market, but nothing in there. We had, we had a little Chinese restaurant um, where they filmed some of our V-Design pack one time. That was, cool. very, that was probably the most exciting thing to ever happen in Bingham. Yeah. You know, getting a glimpse of uh, uh, Jimmy Nail and uh, Bomber and, yeah. all, and all them. Amazing. And... Uh, but we, and it was 12 miles into Nottingham, so we'd, we'd get the bus in. Yeah. So, you know, and it took about, you know, 80 minutes to get in there. Yeah. And then you'd go to, the, like, the first McDonald's. That just opened yeah. back then. Um, I remember st I, st I stole some money from my dad's uh, video shop and took me and two mates in to get our ears pierced. And then we went to our price and bought some records. Good day, mate. Really good day. Well, it ended badly because we got home and my dad uh, took offence at me having an earring in and ripped it out. Uh, gave me a bit of a clout. Swings and roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> my, my, my two mates who I went with, uh, Neil Falkenbridge and Steve Neal, they both got to keep their earrings, which I'd paid for. So, uh, oh, that's was, a rough day, mate. I was gutted. I was gutted, <laughs> but I came home with some records. And uh, yeah, it was our price back then. Um, I'm not sure there was a Virgin in Nottingham, but yeah. there was a couple of like really good hip hop record shops. Arcade Records was the big one in Nottingham for all the hip hop guys. Yeah. I didn't know about that then. I, I was I was too uncool to be like to go in there, and slept to disc. Right. There was like four slept to discs all in a row in in uh, Nottingham, and what a time to be alive! You had one that specialised in indie, one that specialised in dance and really? rap. Really? Yeah, one that was like quite straight, and you just go between them all. It was fantastic, and they had all the uh, they had all the uh, gig posters on the walls, and they had T-shirts for sale. And I'd never been in a place like that before, yeah. and it was quite exciting to go. Oh, there's a whole culture behind yeah. the all these different musics. Well, before we get on to the next track, um, which is which is about clubbing, I, was it when when did you first sort of start writing seriously and get published? Um, so I used to write at university. So I, I wrote for the student paper. Where was I, uni? Uh, Nottingham. Went back right. to Nottingham. Yeah. Still had that affection for that city. Wanted mm -hmm. to go there. Um, so I went to the Trent Uni there, which is the old poly, and I started writing for the student paper. I don't know if I was any good or not, but I was doing TV reviews. Um, I had a column called Eye on the Box, where I just like pour scorn on, you know, whatever ev everyone was watching and talking yeah. about, you know. It's, and this was pre-internet. Yeah. So there was no kind of idea of critical consensus out yeah, there. Yeah, I was yeah, like, sure. what's my mum watching? I'll slag that off, yeah. you know. But 
it wasn't until I, I graduated that I started to think, I'd like to write about hip-hop, you know, it's my, it's my passion. I don't know what career I want to do. At the time, so I, I left uni and went, I went and worked as a personal assistant at a college for a while. Then I worked in another video shop uh, in, in Leeds. And I was just a bit, a bit lost. Yeah. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to contact the editor of Hip Hop Connection magazine, which, you know, I'd grown up reading. Um, it was the world's first ever hip hop publication, yeah. you know, predates all the American ones. And I just thought, I'm going to send him a bit of work on spec. And I didn't hear anything. So I thought, I'm going to send something to the NME. I've read the NME all my life as well, because even whilst I was purely into hip hop, I did like other things as I got older, especially once you're at university and when you're in sixth form. And you're hanging with people that are into like the Pixies or whatever. I got opened up to a lot of stuff. I guess then. Stone Roses and that would have been happening around then. Yeah, that was yeah. all happening around then. And I kind of thought, you know what, the enemy, their coverage of hip hop is is dismal, you know. Yeah. So I sent I sent them a review on Spec, and they published it, and I was absolutely thrilled. Review of what? I can't remember what it was now. Yeah. Um, but I got a check for five pound fourteen, and. It was my first ever check for writing for a magazine. I thought, I'd like to frame this because this might be the start of my career. But I was so desperate for that five quid oh, that I couldn't have to cash it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but within like a couple of months, I was, I was sending stuff to Hip Hop Connection and I was still living in Leeds and you know, doing album reviews. And occasionally they'd say, do you want to interview somebody? And I'd, so I'd get, I'd get the coach down because you know, I couldn't afford the train yeah. back then. So I'd get on the National Express and uh, go down there. And I, was, I started interviewing people like I remember doing Ronnie Size um, and doing a couple of early 90s rappers. Um, and it was just a thrill. The money was like a pittance, but I was actually getting to start to meet people yeah. that I loved. And I found that I was actually quite good at it. Yeah. I could actually, because I knew the music back to front, yeah. but I could also write a bit. Yeah. I, think, I think a lot of the journalists at the time who were writing hip hop mags were kind of like willing amateurs they weren't writers. They didn't want to be writers. Yeah. They just wanted to like interview people yeah. and get out there. So there was no kind of, you know, I thought m literary merit to what they wanted to do. And sure. I, I wanted to be that guy who was like, who could write beautifully. I'm, like, I'm not sure I can, yeah. but that's what I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to really craft my writing because I wanted to tell this story about hip hop because for me, it changed my life. It was so exciting. It was all consuming. I wanted to be able to somehow bring that story to life in the magazines and get paid a few quid for it at the yeah. same time. So yeah, and b within a few months, I got made like editor at large for Hip Hop Connection. And I was writing probably 10, 15,000 words a month for them. You know, and anything that I pitched, they used. And it was, it was fantastic, because I'd just sit at home and I'd, back then I was so in love with hip hop. I just had idea after idea after idea after idea. And I just, you know, I did their first internet column called Webheads. Back in the days of, you know, Ask Jeeves and yeah. GeoCities and all stuff like yeah. that and Alta Vista. And, you know, just, oh, look, Dallas Oliver, a website, yeah. an official website, guys, here it is. You know, that kind of stuff. How did, exciting. It was brilliant. I did a cookery column called Deaf Chef where I, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd interview rappers and at the end of it, I'd say, oh, do you like to cook? Give us a recipe. And then I'd, I'd cook that at home. Uh, I was living in the, with a mate in Bellsize Park at one point when we was doing this, and he was a photographer, so he'd photograph it. Then we'd eat the meal, and you know, brilliant. And it, and it was, it was, it was brilliant. Um, yeah, I just found I could riff off hip hop and do anything with it, you know. Yeah. And it was just a really exciting time. And uh, I kind of don't do it much anymore. I don't really write about hip hop much, other than in my yeah. books. And I kind of miss that day to day grind of 
kind of chronicling the music and chronicling yeah. the culture and trying to shed, shine a bit of light on the kind of forgotten heroes yeah. of it and all stuff like that. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get on to the books um, after the next track. So um, for track five, it's the, the song that soundtrack your clubbing years. So I think I said earlier, like I, I ended up defining myself in opposition to a lot of music in a way. So when, I don't know what happened to me. I went from being this open-minded little boy to being quite a closed-minded hip-hop addict. So anything that didn't fit the bill... I, I didn't just not listen to, I actively went out of my way to tell people that I hated, quite, quite you know, arrogantly, yeah. and, you know, and ignorantly. So, to this day... It's pretty angry. Oh, God, I was such an angry young man. And to this day, some of that's defined my taste. Like, I still cannot bear the Smiths. I will not let anybody tell me the Smiths were good. And I was right about Morrissey all along, by the way. <laughs> I can't take this picture off the wall. This picture's... I, <laughs> I love them. Some of, my, some of my best friends adore him. Yeah. You know, they adore the Smiths. And, you know, and they're probably right. And I'm probably wrong. Yeah. But that was the, that was the zone I was in for so long. Yeah. I hated the Stone Roses. Uh, I hated uh, Happy Mondays. I hated house music. I was just starting to think we could be friends. <laughs> <laughs> This is not where I'm at now. This is, not, this, this is not where I'm at now. But this is where I was when I was like, probably from when I was like 12 to when I was about 20. Yeah. I was just like, nah, don't like that. Don't yeah. like that. It's rubbish. And, and when I was writing raps for my, for my hip-hop group, we were dissing house music all the time. Yeah. You know, and dissing indie people and all that. Funnily enough, we also tried to make a few hip house records ourselves. Right, brilliant. You know? <laughs> total, total, hypocr- total hypocrite. Total hypocrite, but um, so the cl- and there was no real hip hop nights in Leeds, so Clubland was difficult for me because I was that arsehole who was like, no, I'm not listening to house music. Yeah, and I had mates who used to DJ at, like up your Ronson and nights like that in Leeds, and they were like, you coming down? I'm like, yeah. no, absolutely not. Ate that stuff. So we started going to like jazz clubs. Right. So there was like you know that kind of jazz dance stuff around about. So was this the acid jazz thing that was happening? The acid jazz. So yeah. So you had acts like Galliano and Young Disciples. JTQ and Cool Joy and yeah and stuff like that and a lot of talking loud stuff as well. Totally talking loud. Yeah. And and also a bit of Japanese stuff. So when Mo Wax started putting some of the Japanese jazzy dance stuff out, I loved all that. And there was a couple of there was a couple of nights in Leeds called the uh, at the gallery and a few things and you'd go there and you'd hear like jazz dance a bit of house a smattering of hip hop and that was as close as I really got to club yeah. band I didn't really do excuse me I didn't really do the kind of the house clubs of Leeds uh, or of Nottingham I, I just was a bit of a miserable bastard um, <laughs> well, how come you don't like the Smiths <laughs> I was the same but I got lost in that <laughs> I just I, do you know what I, I just I think I, I I just thought it was too white. Yeah. It was too white. It's really white, isn't it? Yeah. But you know, like, you know when you take a contrary position and then you double down on it? Yeah. You double down on it. And even if you know you're wrong, yeah. this, this is what people are doing with Brexit right now. Yeah. Even when they know they're wrong, they're just doubling down. Of course. Because no one likes to admit they're wrong. So <laughs> my position my position on the Smiths just solidified over the years, you know. And, and people are like, yeah, but what about this one? And I'm like... Yeah, okay, all right, that's okay. But, you know, <laughs> it turns out Morris is an arsehole. So, but um, there was this, those, the, the, the club songs that I really liked were the ones that, I think it was when a bit of Jungle started coming in, because it still had the elements of hip-hop. So, uh, Super Sharp Shooter, oh, DJ Hype and Ganja Crew, right. another one that I play at weddings, yeah. uh, because it's 
fast, it's slow, the bass line, and it's got the, the sample is from LL Cool J. Yeah. And so for me, it was a way in. Oh, it's got a bit of hip hop in it. That's acceptable. Yeah. I like that. You know, because yeah. that's the kind of nerd I was. Um, but that record is such a, it, 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 it ticks every box for me for a club record yeah. in that it's got the fast bits, the slow bits, the loud bits, the quiet bits, and the build is really slow. Yeah. That bit where it's almost like the C coming in and out and, you know, and yeah. the distortion in the speakers and it's going shh, shh, and you just know that song's about to go mental. Yeah. You know, and if you're in a club and it's packed and everyone knows what that song is, the club's about to go mental. Yeah, you know? it's a cracker, isn't it? It's really, it's really great and it stands up beautifully. You know, I talk to people about the record all the time and they're just like, what a gem. What yeah. a gem that is, you know. Absolutely. But yeah, that's, that's my, my kind of clubland record because my, my, my clubbing years were scant. Mm -hmm. You know, there, what, there wasn't much about it. I was too much up my own arse. Yeah. Too much trying to be a serious hip hop boy in my bedroom writing lyrics about peace and unity and trying to save the world. I didn't want to be in a club doing it. But even though you hated everything. Even though I hated everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, want to, I want peace and unity in this world that I despise. But <laughs> I think Mark Lamar, I saw Mark Lamar do some like, stand-up years and years ago in the early 90s and he was talking about gangster rap. And he was talking about, I think he's a bit of a hip-hop head back in the day. And I think he was, was saying, it was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to fucking shoot you. I'm going to fuck your sister. I'm going to fuck your mother. I'm going to do this. To peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of year period where all rappers said peace at the end of their songs. Yeah. Uh, Just Ice, Keras One, peace, peace. Every single track, no matter if they've been talking about, you know, fuck the police or, yeah. you know, sound of the police yeah. or anything, or if they've been talking about shooting somebody, yeah. it was peace at the end. <laughs> And it just made no sense. It's brilliant. And there's, a, there's an all-time great song by a group called Main Source called Peace Is Not The Word To Play. Because mm. he, he, he the, the rapper, Large Professor, was just pissed off with everyone banging on about peace and not being peaceful. Yeah. You know, I think he said something along the lines of, uh, you don't know what the meaning of peace is, you're just leaving people in pieces. Stuff like that. Nice. You know, a bit clunky. Yeah. But at the time, I loved that because I was like, yeah, what's everyone saying peace for? Everyone's yeah. really aggressive in hip-hop, yeah. you know, if, if you believe what they say. So... You've, you've written by now, not just for um, Hip Hop Connection Enemy, you, you've wrote for a lot of publications, haven't you? Yeah. So, I mean, what was a really good springboard for me was uh, I got a bit... So I loved writing for Hip Hop Connection, but I felt I was a bit limited in what I could do. And, and me and some friends in Leeds uh, were like, why don't we do our own magazine? So we launched a little magazine called uh, Fat Lace. And it was basically just... We wanted to do more of a satirical hip hop thing. And... You know, we did five issues in the end, and it, it sold at, the, at its top a couple of thousand copies, but it had a really great influence for us. So we got DJ Yoda on board as a contrib contributor on from issue three onwards, and um, I'm, I'm interviewing him next week. Oh, well, <laughs> I, 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 I had lunch with him yesterday. Oh, amazing! Yeah, he's, a, he's Duncan's one of the nicest fellas in the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolute diamond. And yeah, he came on board and brought his kind of sensibility to it. And we were doing things in Fat Lace that. You know, it got us death threats. It got us, you know, because we, we did an autopsy of Biggie Smalls using the Operation board game and put his head on the top and stuff like that. You know, and we just wanted to, like, push the boundaries and say, we adore hip-hop, but some of it's so absurd. Yeah, of course. You know, especially because hip-hop was really big by then. We were in the kind of the Puff Daddy era. Of course. It was everywhere. And I just thought, I just thought it's ripe for mockery. But Fat Lace became a bit of a calling card. 
So like the face got in touch with us, right. and they they did a they did a photo shoot with me and my fellow editors and designers on you know in, in in Shoreditch I think it was on the top of a building, and like did a feature on us and going like the guys behind behind this satirical hip hop magazine and that led me to writing for the face it led me to writing for Select uh, the Word oh, I love Select Select was great shout out Andrew Harrison I bumped yeah. into him yesterday the old editor of Select um, that was a great music because that was a really broad magazine that covered indie in depth it covered hip hop it covered everything that's that's a really great mag and uh, yeah Vox yeah uh, Uncut you know and I never had big careers at these places but I just got by and yeah. I, you know um, when, I, when I did my first book the book of hip hop cover art all those magazines covered it it was fantastic it, yeah. was, it, was, it, was, it was such a blessing and um, but yeah I think the Fat Lace was, it was a thing that got, us in, that got me in there really yeah. because they saw that I wasn't taking hip hop too seriously that I was poking a bit of fun at it yeah. which obviously that, that teenage me who was so angry at the world couldn't have done yeah. but by my 20s I'd grown up a little bit and yeah. was like okay some of this hip hop stuff is really absurd. Yeah. If I if I literally count all the people that have been killed in the songs I'm listening to, yeah. there were no one left in America. Yeah. You know, so obviously they're not telling the truth. Yeah. So let's take the Mickey out of that. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. So yeah. Track six, favorite song from an artist from your hometown. This is really this is really difficult for me. Okay. This Leeds Leeds music scene is okay, but. Compared to Manchester, if I was from Manchester, this would be a walk it's in the endless, park. Yeah. It's endless. Leeds, you're looking at a wedding present. You're looking at, if you're looking at West Yorkshire, you're looking at Bridewell taxis, yeah. uh, Cud, yeah. people like that. I don't like any of their music. Oh. And, uh, you know, I don't dislike it. Yeah. I couldn't put it as a favourite. Yeah. You know, I like some wedding presents. I couldn't yeah. put it as a favourite. Can I count South Yorkshire? And then I can throw Arctic Monkeys into the mix. Because their first album for me is a perfect pop record. Um, so yeah, something like Marty Bum. L- lyrically, I, 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 I signed off pretty much maybe after the second album with them. Snap, yeah. Um, at first album, the lyrics to stuff like certain romance and things like that, I hear that and I just think that's just incredible. And like, and just it's just kids talking about what what they're seeing. And I'm not big on the rock star, Alex. No, uh, me neither. I think he's become quite a charmless individual yeah. in, in his, his persona. Yeah. Um, I didn't like his like side projects and stuff like that. I'm not feeling it. Not feeling it at all. But that first album, it just encapsulates a certain kind of northern life and way of talking about it that I'd not heard on music before. Yeah. And I think the kind of... The, I mean, the Kaiser Chiefs are big in Leeds. Yeah. Um, but for me, they're kind of almost like a pound shop version of Arctic Monkeys in a... They, they're pretty good at channeling that kind of working class life into the music, yeah. but there was a poetry about Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. So, but it's South Yorkshire. It's technically not my county. Right. So I, I can't count it. So I've I wrapped my brains on this. So I've gone with Nightmares on Wax. Cool. So George Evelyn uh, is actually an old friend of mine. Um, so I feel I've got to get that out there. I'm, I, there's a bit of bias in choosing this. Yeah. But the reason I've chosen, uh, so it's called Keep On, and it features Della Soul. So it's a bit of a cheat in that as well. Yep. You know, it's got these three guys from Long Island on it. But Della Soul, my favourite rap group of all time. And mine. Um, absolutely adore them. And then working with a guy from Leeds. For me, I don't know, I, th- I think why I chose it, it encapsulates what someone from Leeds can do. And I wanted to be part of the Leeds rap scene so much. I used to go to the Warehouse uh, Club uh, where 
George from Nightmares on Wax used to DJ. He had a residency there for a while. Uh, and then I saw him do shows there, put on shows. Then he started a club, which I used to do the PR for. And I was, always admired him from afar, the way he handled his career, you know, because he started out doing house music, that record Dextrous, you know that? It was the first Nightmares on Wax thing uh, on Warp Records. And he's still on Warp Records now. And, I, and his career's gone from like that kind of stoner stuff through a bit of hip hop, neo soul. And he's, it's, he's all like an unpretentious boy from Leeds doing it. Yeah. And for me, I was like, I wish I could have done that. I wish I'd had that cool and yeah. that charisma and that talent to do that. Uh, and, and George has, has done that, you know. And for me, he's, he's like the most successful guy from Leeds in terms okay. of music. You know, I can't, I can't see past him for that. A, a worthy selection there then. So you, you touched upon the fact that you, you, you rapped, you, you had a group. So let's, let's talk about that, because does that end up leading you to one of your books as well then? It does, yeah. So I, think, I, mean, I was a dreadful rapper. Right. I, was, I, was, I tried hard. I wrote probably four or five hundred songs. Right. And uh, yeah, so when I moved to Leeds, I, I was in this rap group that was, uh, it was called Prehistoric Ages initially. Yeah. Um, because we were all about trying to take hip hop back to the time. We were basically Jurassic 5 before Jurassic 5. Yeah. You know. Um, but, and we, you know, my, my, my best friend, uh, Dan Greenpeace, was the producer. We had a scratch DJ, DJ Countdown. Dan Peace, uh, Dan Greenpeace from XFM and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Dan was my DJ and co-rapper. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we did it all in our bedroom. We had a little four-track and a sampler and yeah. a Tascam and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'd come, you know, with my lyrics and then we'd, we'd pick some samples and I'd go to the Leeds Library and get some jazz records and we'd try and find some stuff. Yeah. And then we spent half the time just making up our names. So... <laughs> Rattle them off, come on. So, so everyone had to have an acronym. So... DJ Countdown was the count doing only what's necessary. Uh, That's incredible. Greenpeace was Greenpeace the bomb bringing our messages back. And I was Scam, which is speaking critically about mankind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing. I mean, I mean, the levels of pretension. <laughs> there, was, there, was a, there was a little period where I was making stuff on my own in my bedroom, just trying to do, like, pause tapes and stuff like that. And at that point, I was Scam, the solo prophet. <laughs> oh, God, I wish you would have got some of these names tattooed. That oh, would have been even better. And we, we did photo shoots. We, you know, we'd go, we'd go into, like... North Yorkshire into Otley Park and Otley Chevin and take photos on rocks of us looking moodily into the distance. Uh, and then we'd, you know, for our EP, which was called Outside the System Looking In. You know, I mean, we were just preposterous. But it was, all, but it was amazing fun. Yeah, Because I, I felt part of a group. I felt like I was, in many ways, the kind of creative director of it. I mean, really, Greenpeace was the talented one. Yeah. And Martin was a brilliant scratch DJ. Yeah. But I, I, I thought I had the vision for the song. you the Lavelle to his shadow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was an exciting time. And we, we, we ended up hiring studios and, like, we recorded with a few of the, like, Leeds rap groups, like New Flesh for Old, who went on to have quite a few good records on Big Dada. You know, we got them in the studio. We, we did... And at one point, it just clicked to me that I was trying to be this really serious rapper. Uh... And it just didn't fit. I didn't have the gravitas. I didn't have the voice. My voice was too high, you know. And now it's like, you know, as someone said, you sound like a man carrying a fridge, you know. <laughs> 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 it just didn't work. 
so at one point we, we just switched and we became progressive agenda. Uh, so we were still called the PA Posse. Of course. Um, but then we just started doing silly songs. So the, the, I think the best song we ever recorded was a posse cut. Uh, There's about eight rappers on it, and it's called Drinking Tea with the Lads. And we're just, it's just like, you know, like a bunch of northern rappers in the studio rapping about making tea, Tetley's, you know, uh, yeah. what biscuits to dunk in it and stuff like that. And no one wants to hear that. It's not great. It was it was the essence of hip hop fun for me, you know. Yeah. We, we were having such a great time doing it, but yeah. And then eventually we just called it a day because you start going, you know, one lad goes to university, another one goes and gets a job at ASDA, yeah. and then you're like, well, have we got time to do this anymore? And yeah. you know, one of you's still writing lyrics, one of you's still doing that, and but you end up, just, you know, yeah. you then get girlfriends, yeah, and you, you know, your little hobby dies off, yeah. And yeah, so by the time I was. I don't know, maybe 19, 20, that, that dream was over for me, yeah. you know. And I was like, I went into hip-hop retirement. <laughs> and so, you've then gone and, and written about this, yeah? Yeah, so a, a, a few years later, a, a, a very good friend of mine, uh, and a, a brilliant journalist, uh, Justin Quirk, uh, he read a book called um, Hell Bent for Leather. Uh, and basically, it was, it was about a, a metal fan in Winchester. Um, I've heard about this. I've not read it. It's meant it's, to be incredible. It's absolutely brilliant. And he, he basically said to me, I've read this book, read it. This is your life, but your life in hip-hop because you should write the hip-hop version of this. He 100% gave me the idea for it to Justin. Yeah. I, I hadn't even thought about writing about my hip-hop kind of upbringing because I thought, who cares? You know, I'm just a no-mark. But then as the more I thought about it, I was like, well, my story is a story of, of many other people as well the experience I had of hip-hop revolutionising my life. When I was 11 and at school, I was probably one of the kids who called the black kid at school Sambo. I was probably a proto-Brexiteer yeah. in the making because I lived in a white village, a white town, I knew yeah. nothing else, you know. And I think back on that period of shame, but also I think hip-hop was the thing that rescued me from it. Yeah. You know, it basically opened my, my mind and my heart at the same time. I learned about different culture. I learned about pro-black politics. I learned about slavery. All these things that I literally had not been on my radar, hip-hop did for me. And I thought the book could encapsulate that journey of you know, me trying and failing to be a rapper, because you've got a little rise and fall narrative. you know. But also I wanted to really say to people, this is, this is our story. It hasn't been told anywhere. It's yeah. not been on TV. It's, you know, every hip-hop documentary that's ever made is Afro-Bombata, Grandmaster Flash, Cool Herc, Next Thing, Public Enemy, yeah. De La Soul, Biggie, The End. You know, I'm like, the, the real story in, in the UK is the kids who were breakdancing. Yeah. It's the kids who were what in the night wind cheaters. It's the kids who were walking around their little market town with a ghetto blaster that was basically, you know, about five inches long. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, yeah. no one could hear it yeah. apart from me. And couldn't you afford know. the batteries. That's it. It was, it, was, it was that story. And I thought, I want to tell this story and I want to tell it with humour and I want to tell it with plenty of asides of like explaining what things were to the layman because I don't want this just to be read by people who lived it. I want it to be read by, by people who want to understand the culture of that time. Yeah. You know, so yeah, so there's little footnotes on what beatboxing is. Yeah. You know, or why every rap group for a certain period had an acronym, yeah. you know, which was often ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I think one of them is like, there's a group called Edo G and the Bulldogs. I don't know if you remember, if you, if you remember them. Know. 
but uh, that stood for Every Day, Another Go, and the black urban leaders living directly off grooving sounds. And, <laughs> and this is what we spent our time obsessing over, stuff like yeah. that. I just wanted to tell that story of the margins yeah. of hip-hop, not just the big hitters, yeah. not the guys that we all know from TV, yeah. but the people who were buying the records, the yeah. people that were going to the concerts, the people that were turning up to see Stetsasonic last night and being yeah. disappointed. Yeah. And they've been putting their money into hip-hop since they were 10 and 11 years old. Yeah. You know, So I've, I kind of hope, from the feedback I've had, that I've captured that. Um, and hopefully, uh, it's, the, the book's been optioned for TV. Um, by uh, you know, Tom Davis from Murder and Successful. He read it and he bought the option on it. So that we're trying to find a writer at the moment and a channel. So that could oh, be quite amazing. weird watching my kind of... Because it's set in the mid-80s. Yeah. It's set in, you know, it's got my dad and my mum in it and me. And yeah, who knows by the time it gets made whether I, I get kicked out of the storyline. But, yeah. you know, it, it's trying to capture that mid-80s thing of hip-hop coming to the UK. Oh, mate, that'd be amazing. It would, it would be a dream come true for me. And what's the book but, called? It's called Wiggers of Attitude. Of course it is. My life as a failed white rapper. <laughs> <laughs> Last track, Andrew. Um, the song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Yeah, I, 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 I pulled out 50, 60. Obscure hip-hop B-sides, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, I, really, I really obsess over certain kind of Marvin Gaye uh, deep album cuts. Uh, from like Hear My Dear and stuff like that, which for me is his great masterpiece of an album. I don't think people obviously they all know what's going on uh, and they all know sexual healing, but you know, Marvin Gaye did a whole album to pay his divorce bill and it's the most bitter, angry, beautiful album ever made. I think it's great. I, 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 it, it's not my fave. Is it not? No. I, Let's I, get it on's mine. Let's get, I mean, right. that's, that's, a, that's a smooth masterpiece. Yeah. It's seamless, yeah. it's beautiful. What I, what I love about uh, Here My Dear is, in one minute he's, he's doing Anna's song, yeah. and it's, it's got the most heartbreaking, tender lyrics, and then the next song he's singing, why do I have to pay attorney's fees? Yeah. You know, it's literally yeah. like a legal dispute. Yeah. But, so, and I think that's un, that album's a bit under-listened to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I was going to choose that, but that, 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 that took me down a bit of a rabbit hole, and I came out of what I think is like the most overlooked... British artist of the last 20 years is Lewis Taylor. Uh, he's had a really strange career where he came out, he was like the white king of neo-soul. And uh, within a couple of years, he'd been kicked off his label. There was all kinds of stories of him uh, disappearing, changing his name, uh, that he'd disavowed all his former music. You can't find any of it on YouTube and he takes it down if you put it up there. Most of this stuff is bullshit. He's just, he's just retired from music. And he just takes stuff down off YouTube because he wants you to buy it and pay mm. for it, like, you know, which is fair enough. Yeah. But his album, which is called Lewis Taylor, is just a, a real heart-wrenching masterpiece of love songs. And it's got some, like, crunchy, squally guitar stuff in there. It's quite psychedelic and esoteric. But it also soundtracks a time in my life when I was just that time when I was opening up to new music, when I'd, I'd been shut down for so long, and I met a good friend of mine, Rob Percy, and he is, you know, the king of R&B and soul. He knows everything ever about R&B and soul, and he'll know everything about the future of it as well. He's the king of it. And he, he turned me onto this album, and we were in Leeds, we just, we just met, become friends, 
And it was a good time. I've met him and his, and his lovely wife, Lucy, and they became two of my dearest friends. And it, it captures that time of meeting new people, of discovering new music. And he turned me on to him, my dear. He turned me on to Maceo Parker. He turned me on to Bobby Womack and stuff like that that I'd never heard before. And I just felt like it was a second coming for me in music. I just finally opened my mind up after shutting it down for so long. And that Lewis Taylor album, and especially a song called Bittersweet, it's just so ambitious uh, and so romantic, uh, but also it's glitchy, it's not perfect, it's, there's rough edges on it. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I play that album routinely and never tire of it. It's, it's an absolute masterpiece. Well, it sounds very worthy of being your last choice then, mate. Good case put forward for it. What's happening now? Well, uh, starting the sequel to Wiggers, um, mm -hmm. which is going to be about the years of hip-hop journalism. Um, so it's all the times I went to New York, the times I got death threats, the times I called Jay-Z a cunt, uh, the times of... Uh, <laughs> Calling Method Man and Red Man, the same word. Uh, you know, falling out with rappers, rappers falling asleep in interviews. Yeah. Um, helping break the independent era of hip-hop music and raucous records over here and getting involved with that and being in the studio when most Def was recording his album. All, all these kind of exciting adventures I got to have as a hip-hop journalist and I kind of want to write that story. Um, I, I, I haven't quite nailed the tone or the arc of it yet, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on now. Excellent. Can't wait. Can't wait, mate. Andrew, thanks so much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm really sorry about the Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What a top lad Andrew is. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, laughed a lot, and, and it was great chatting music. And it's always great when, when, when someone's grown up at the same time as you as well. So lots of the kind of reference points um, of... of, of you know, moments in music and things like that, I could I could relate to. So, hopefully, that added to the to to the flow of the conversation. Uh, it really was a, a joy to record this one. Um, thanks ever so much for listening. If you can go over to iTunes and subscribe, that way these episodes just pop up on your listening device. You don't have to go searching for anything. And while you're over there, please just give us a little review uh, because all of these little things really do help. And, uh, and it only takes 10 seconds. So just go and give us a little rating and, and leave a nice message if you enjoyed it. Um, if you didn't, then uh, well, don't go over there and say anything nasty. I don't want, don't want none of that happening. So uh, if you didn't enjoy it, then uh, don't worry about it. There's loads of other podcasts to listen to. I'm done chatting. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. See you later. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a lot of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code and it just 
automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.